Hello, and welcome to the Mark Grove Podcast. I'm going to mix it up a little this week and start with a shout out to you. If your name is Lid.Nova, for the five-star review that you gave me on the podcast, and you're from Great Britain, hello, I'm so appreciative, Lid.Nova, if that's your real name. That accent wasn't too bad. You know, I try accents, but they all sort of come out as like an Irish Jamaican person at the end, like an alchemy of accents. So I'll do my best to do better, but I don't think that British one, I don't think it was too bad, right? So anyways, what Lid had to say was, Mark, I just love that you speak your truth every single time, so authentically and with such compassion and humor. There is not a podcast episode or Instagram live that I listen to without having an aha moment, a laugh, and a lot more self-awareness afterwards. Thank you for keeping showing up the way you do. Thank you for leaving that review. And so a reminder to you, please, wherever you listen to this, go subscribe and give it a five-star review and a written review. That really helps get in other people's ears. And if you love this episode, please share it. So as part of my ongoing love affair with Organifi, I have been trying all their products. And I have now made part of my morning routine their green juice. And if you don't know what their green juice is, it's essentially like a superfood orgy of, (laughs) I don't know if there's another, there's probably another way to say it, but I don't want to say it another way because that tells you what's happening. Moringa, Chlorella, mint, spirulina, beetroot, matcha green tea, wheatgrass, ashwagandha, turmeric, lemon juice, coconut water, all getting in each other's business so they can bring the power of those superfoods to your body. So if this sounds like something that you're like, yo, I want to make that part of my morning routine, especially because you know when you drink green juice sometimes and you're like, oh, that tastes like lawnmower shavings with water. This tastes so good. So if that sounds like something you're like, yo, I want some of that, Go to Organifi.com slash create the love and you get a discount at O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash create the love. You get 20% off. Really, we have been exploring the vastness of human connection, you know, the human experience. And really, human connection is just about connection. It's about our connection to all things, everything that's not us we're in a relationship with. And I I always think of that meme that has like a picture of a forest often, and it says, there's no Wi-Fi in the forest, but you will find a better connection. And I think that's so true that this like being able to feel into the complexity of the human experience, into what it means to to just not shy away from any subjects, to be open to talking about all things, to just because something's uncomfortable or anything like that, that we often avoid those subjects because we don't want to be sort of disturbed in our privilege in a lot of ways. And so I have been really curious about really wanting to talk about subjects that people don't want to talk about because I think there's a lot of learning there about the human experience. You know that saying that hurt people hurt people. And I think that's so true. And I think what's complex about that is if we are, we all have behaviors that have hurt people, and I'm sure we'll all hurt people in a certain way by reacting poorly or not handling a conflict appropriately or, you know, not considering someone or not prioritizing someone or, you know, whatever it may be. And being able to recognize that often the ways that we mishandle conflict are ways that we learned how to handle conflict. And so it's hard to hold the complexity of our behaviors when we inherited them, when we sort of go, well, why do I have to deal with this? Why is this my responsibility? Why does that person get that life and I get this one? And 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 to be able to hold space for all of that, because all of it's true. The more I sort of sit with that with myself is recognizing that, yes, as hurt people hurt people, healed people heal people, as we do the work, as we do the exploring, as we begin to question things about our own experience, we start to question all things. And I think that's, you know, we're not sort of invited to a healthy level of skepticism because think about how often we're told, like, if you're crying, like, you're not sad. Or if you want to ask a question about your religion or culture or community or someone's divorce or an infidelity or anything like that, we're sort of like, just leave that subject. Oh, no, we don't talk about that here. Or just the matter of people not talking about it sends the message that you can't talk about it. So it's been really important to me that 
I explore all of the human experience. I recognize the privilege that I've been born into being born in Canada, being born as a white straight male, and just how much I have been sort of protected or just by positioning uh, not been exposed to as much suffering. And the more I learn about other people's experiences, the more I am invited to continue to expand my own ability to hold that deep, the multitudes of what it means to be human. And so, you know, the subject of human trafficking has really, I mean, gosh, we haven't really had that much conversation. I remember in high school and junior high having someone come and talk to our school about it, but that was really it, you know, other than seeing it in movies or seeing it in TV and and more recently, I'd say seeing it in the Jeffrey Epstein conversations that it became a more uh, media focused subject. And I want, I would love to say that it's because the media is really concerned about saving kids from human trafficking and adults. Um, but I'd say it was more so because of the possible readership and viewership that the case could get. And the sort of passive benefit to that is that this conversation has become more mainstream and it's a very, very important one. You know, you don't realize that it's literally living all around us, that it is a massive industry. And the serendipitous nature to which today's guest came into my experience, which we talk about on the podcast, so I don't want to ruin that, um, it was just so fascinating, you know, just to like see her story and be like, I have to ask this woman about her experience so that we can learn from it and her mission that she's on. Before we start with today's episode, I want to provide a trigger warning that we do cover the subjects of rape, abuse, and suicide. And so I wanted to be mindful of your experience. So if at any time you feel like you don't want to listen anymore or it's feeling like too much and you need to stop it, please do that. Take care of yourself first always. So today's guest is incredible. She had a courageous escape at the age of 15 from a lifetime of familial child sex trafficking. Coco Berthman has dedicated her life to fearlessly challenging the status quo by demanding that society abolish human sex trafficking, which is a $53 trillion worldwide market. And as a counter-trafficking specialist, an aspiring forensic neurologist and keynote speaker, Coco delivers a powerful presentation. Each time she speaks, that's for sure, to teach about the logistics of human trafficking, as well as clearing any misconceptions around modern-day slavery and trauma healing. She's an international speaker and communicates in multiple languages. She teaches first responders. She teaches at universities, hospitals, and forensic staff about the importance of recognizing and reporting signs of human trafficking. She empowers victims to break through the vicious cycles of abuse, unhealthy patterns, and violence. In serving as a victim advocate for numerous nonprofit organizations, Coco actively participates in human sex trafficking extraction operations. And in 2019, she founded the Coco Berthman Scholarship Fund. I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. Coco has inspired thousands of survivors to come forward with their own testimonies, leading to healing, increased awareness, and action. As she says, I was hidden in plain sight. If one of us doesn't have freedom, none of us are free. What a beautiful statement and so true. So I'm absolutely honored to be able to share this conversation and I know that you will enjoy it, be moved by it, and all of the things. So without further ado, here is Coco Berthman. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am honored to have Coco Berthman on the podcast today, who is a counter-human trafficking specialist and the founder of the Coco Berthman Scholarship Fund. And I'll try my German, Coco Berthman, Berthman. Is that... <laughs> That was Close bad. enough. That was pretty you kind bad. of butchered it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, don't don't make my butchering of the German language uh, get in the way of my admiration of your mission. Oh, so, thank you so much. I'm well, so thank excited you so much. to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. And and uh, you know, I want to acknowledge the courage and bravery and the the passion to which you speak about all of these subjects and and the invitation we all receive from you doing that. So oh, thanks. 
So yeah, like where do we begin is really, I think the, the appropriate invitation, you know, yeah. to, uh, yeah, tell us your story. I'm like thinking of the right <laughs> question, but I you know, know, it's like, how did we get here? And, okay. you know, and, and, and welcome us into the story, please. Yeah, well, thanks to social media, we connect it, right? The power of social media. And I kind of tacked you around and then you finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but oh my gosh, I've been following you for a good while and you have helped me so much in my personal healing off from surviving human, human trafficking and healing from the trauma, especially when it comes to relationships. And yeah, so my story, I am a child trafficking survivor. I was trafficked for the first 15 years of my life um, by my family, in particular, my mother, um, born and raised in Germany. So most of my trafficking took place in Germany and, and Europe. Yeah, I mean, let's like, how deep are we going to go? <laughs> so I have come public with my story about three and a half years ago, and if yeah. it kind of just exploded. It really exploded really quick, really fast. And it all started with a little local podcast. Um, and I thought, oh, it's just going to be five people who listen to that one. <laughs> you sound like Renee Brown with her <laughs> TED Talk, you know. I know. And I just gave my TED Talk and I thought about it because she's one of my heroes. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, what is happening so no, I'm just very, very grateful for people like you um, who offer their platform to talk about such a difficult topic where it's much easier to, to shy away. And that's um, why I have chosen to come public. So um, I was born into trafficking. And for most people, the, the image of human trafficking looks kind of like a Hollywood movie. You know, you get kidnapped, chained up somewhere in a dungeon shipped around the world. And um, unfortunately, that is most likely never the case in human trafficking, um, in child trafficking. Most of the times it's familial trafficking, like in my case. I was never kidnapped. I was never chained up in a dungeon and I was never shipped around. Um, and I, I've shared it just recently on the TED Talk. While you know other children grew up with monsters under their bed, I had to grow up with the monsters in my bed. And so people would come to our home to purchase um, me or my siblings. And it was a very confusing time because whatever you're born into as a child, that's your normal. You don't question that until yeah. you have other influences, right? And and here's the deal. Like I've always went to horseback riding, dance lesson, and school. And I was right there in the middle of all the all the children. And it happened in front of everybody. Wow. And the only the only odd thing about our family really was just that we moved at least once a year. So I was in 16 different schools before the age of 14. And now, you know, being in the work of counter-human trafficking efforts, I know that is one of the tactics and strategies of a trafficker to keep the victim disorientated, to not give an opportunity to build a support system or a trusted relationship. And so I've never had a teacher really that I really liked or really trusted or friend group because I've always been the new kid on campus and we never stick longer than a year. So there was really no opportunity for me as a child to build a relationship where I could get different influences. And for a long time, I didn't question what's happening to us at home. Up until we started, my my bigger sister and I, we started watching Gilmore Girls. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show. And yeah. It's about this mom and daughter, and they have a really, really close relationship. It's a single mom. And I think it was about, I might have been like five or six or seven when we started watching this. And I started questioning, why don't I have that kind of relationship to my mom like they have in the TV show? And I started really longing for that and craving it. And so I started trying to, to find that somewhere outside. You know, I tried to build relationship with teachers, but we just were never long enough around and then we started watching Law and Order Special Victims Unit, like an, also an American TV show. Yeah. Um, still watch it. <laughs> and, you know, oddly enough, while we were starting to get older, we started really questioning our situation because there were a lot of similarities at our home that kind of aligned what was portrayed in the TV show. And there's one episode in particular, season seven, episode three, it's called 911. It's about this child that is sexually exploited over child pornography over the web by this um, guy. And 
it like kind of rocked my world as a child because there were situations where we were filmed during an abuse and I started to connect the dots. Um, and I, I'm, I was still, I think under 10 years old when I started connecting the dots and my sister, she was two years older. Um, she kind of, kind of realized more and quicker, you know, like what's happening is not right. And it's abuse we didn't know what was happening to this child exploitation or trafficking. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So for, you know, very horrible incidences happen. I mean, we were abused 10 to 50 times a day on some occasions, especially during holidays when people were having time off. And for us, that meant, okay, the demand would increase and it was very terrifying. Um, then on other seasons, there hardly anything happened. So like it really, there was not like a, one day fits yeah. yeah yeah fits the other um and so anyway my my bigger sister um she started wanting to talk to a teacher and um she wanted to disclose and however that was found out and unfortunately she was murdered um pretty brutally and i had to witness that at age 12 and she was 14 and um it was horrible and that was my my realization that I needed to get away um and I here again like I was 12 years old like how do I even you know how do you even process that or right and so um I started and here's again like I always had access to computers or tv and like I've never been chained up it was the emotional pressure and threats and manipulation of a child that kept me there or you know kept me quiet and the loyalty issue you know like it's my mom like how do you even do something about that um and as a child like you lose your your parent you're dead like they take care of you um anyway and so I however after that incident I started researching and I found a clinic on the other side of Germany that was treating traumatized children I called them on behalf of a friend and I asked, like, I have this friend who's in trouble and I didn't want to say my name because I was scared. Like if somebody, you know, finds out I'll get in trouble and the same thing will happen to me that happened to my sister. And they told me, you know, as long as they don't know the name of my friend, they can't really do anything and come help her. But if my friend would come to the hospital, nobody could take her out of there and she would get help. And there was like this wonderful law in Germany where if a child wants to get treatment in a hospital, even against the will of the parent, the parent cannot take the child out. So I knew that was my way. But again, like how do you get across the country at age 12, kind of lost hope really quick. And then at age 14, like, you know, life continued and the abuse continued. We moved and they, and they covered up, you know, that, that horrible incident by um, just saying to the government, like, because we're in EU, we have the Schengen agreement, you can live and work anywhere. And they said that she's going to be going to school in Croatia. Nobody followed up. Like we fell through the cracks of the system so many times. About your sister, you mean? Yeah, correct. And so that was the way how they were able to cover it up. Anyway, and so life continued. And I at age 14, um, I became pregnant by one of the abusers and it was a pretty horrible and they found it out and they performed an illegal abortion. And that was the moment when I knew like I have to get out of there. And so I became more serious about the planning. And for me, you know, what's interesting as a child, I started creating this imaginary world that I could dissociate into every time during a rape and abuse um, in that world, and this is going to be the cheesy part of my story, um, I chose Celine Dion to be my mom. And um, I kind of took her as my example. And I always said, I want to become like her. Um, instead Celine of Dion? Did yeah. You Celine yeah. Dion. Oh, okay. Yeah. So while I created this imaginary world, you know, where Celine Dion would be my mom and took her as my example. And every time during a rape or abuse, I could dissociate into that world. And I, told her all the things and she would sing me lullabies and like I created really this powerful world and I think that kept me sane you know and and, and in that world as well um Marishka Hargitay from the the main actress from Law and Order SVU playing Olivia Benson she was the police officer that would come and would arrest the bad guys and like rescue me out of there and so I just created this world 
while I was looking to get out, it just helped me to, to set my focus of where I want to go and where, who I want to be. And, and, and then I took my sister as an example, you know, she, she was the brave one from the two of us and she wanted to get out of there to help me um, and, and um, my other siblings. And I, finally said, okay, you know what, screw it. I'm, I'm going to try to get out of here. So I found a train that would take me from one side of the country to the other. I needed 113 euros. I mean, like, how do I get the money? I was yeah. like, I'll figure it out. And I was just making this plan. I've got to go. Um, and so then in November of 2009, my mother was planning to go to Poland for a weekend and leave me and my other siblings at home. And I was like, great, this is going to be my opportunity to leave without her noticing right away. And it would give me a chance to get there, get admitted. And then she can't take me out of there. So she leaves on November 1st, 2009. Um, and she would be driving um, to Poland. And I was just like, okay, great. She left, started packing my things, getting prepared and I kid you not, an hour after she left, she called me and she said, I have a bad feeling I'm coming back home. Oh, wow. Like, what the F? Like, she must be a witch. I, like, <laughs> how could she know, you know? Yeah. But like, as funny as it sounds now, it was devastating, you know? I, I bet. Was, you have these gosh. hopes, this plan, yeah. this, you're yeah. ready to do it. And I was just like, I'm going to be dying here, you know? And um, so... Then I unpacked really quickly before she would notice. I went to bed that night and I gave, I really gave up hope, you know, and yeah. I, d- I did attempt suicide at age 12 and I thought maybe that's going to be my way out. And I started just contemplating. Anyway, so I went to bed. Um, and so at that point I was 15 and I thought that's, that'll be it. And then what, how I like to describe it is I woke up in the middle of the night. It must've been like three thirty four ish and it just felt like, so I was turned to the wall with my bed, like while I was sleeping. And I felt like somebody was standing behind me, waking me up. And I woke up and like, nobody was there. Um, <laughs> and all of a sudden, I call it the 20 seconds of the most insane courage that I've ever had. I knew in that moment, I got to get up. I got to get my backpack and I have to leave and I have to leave now. And it just felt like like this out of body experience where I just got up. I went to my closet. I grabbed my backpack, threw in some underwear, really just went to my door. And I was just not even daring to breathe because I was so afraid somebody would hear me in the house. And I tiptoed down the barrel staircase and I went to my mother's wallet, took out 113 euros that I needed. And, and one cigarette. I quit smoking at this time. Like, don't smoke kids. Um, and don't smoke. <laughs> it was an emergency. <laughs> and um, took out the money. And I didn't take a cent more. You know, I could have taken this entire pack of freaking cigarettes. But I don't know. Anyway, so I went to the door. And I put in my iPod back in that time. <laughs> Gosh, we're getting older. And um, turned on Celine Dion's Taking Chances song. I opened the door. I took my keys and I don't know until this day why I took my keys and closed the door and I just started running. Um, wow. And I What time was it in the morning? It, it must have been 4.35ish at that time. Yeah. Um, and I didn't feel anything other than the music and colder in my face. You know, it was in November in Germany. It's freaking cold in Germany at that time. Yeah. <laughs> And I made it to the bus stop and that would take me to the local train station. And I jumped onto the bus and the driver was like, oh, are you going on a trip? And I look at him. I'm like, no, I'm running away from home. And he's like, oh, do you have to call the cops? And I look at him in total disbelief. I was just like, well, if you call the cops, I can't run away from home, duh. <laughs> he's like, well, he's like, well, good point. And he just let me go. Um, so I jumped on the bus and I made it to the local train station, made it to the train that would take me to the main straight to, uh, main train station. And then I would jump onto the ice train in Germany, you know, like those super fast trains. And then it was around six in the morning while I was waiting there and my start phone started ringing. And I noticed like my mom was trying to call me and like every two minutes. So I was just like, so unsure, jumped on the train. And then I had to tr- change the train in Frankfurt main station. If you've ever been in Germany, 
yeah. and ever taken any trains, you know, it's a madhouse and especially in Frankfurt. Yeah. <laughs> so here I am at 15, you know, never been alone somewhere. And now just lost in the world, trying to figure my way out and had to change the tracks. And um, I remember from the TV shows that I watched, you know, all the bad guys, if they don't want to be found, they throw away their phone. So what is my smart ass doing? I'm throwing my freaking phone away in the next trash that I find and jump into the next train. And I joined a little um, elderly woman in one of those sections, you know, like Harry Potter train sections. Yeah. And we started chatting and, you know, I made up lies that I'm a student and moving across the country. And she just gave me so much comfort just sitting there with this elderly woman while I'm trying to run away from that horrible situation. And when um, we arrived at this train station, she looks at me and she's like, hey, do you smoke? And I'm like, yeah, sorry, but I don't have any on me. And she, she just gave me a pack of cigarettes. And I was so grateful. <laughs> she's like, oh, my gosh, I need this so badly right now. Um, and. I made it to the hospital and they admitted me first on the regular station because I was in really bad conditions, you know, like malnourished and bruised. And um, they knew something happened to me, but I, I, I wasn't ready to talk. And then um, after three days, the social worker, she really did good job. And I opened up to her only about being abused by my stepdad. I've never felt the courage at that time at age 15 to say, you know, what my mom was doing, nor did I really understand the logistics behind it and the loyalty issue. So my traffickers never got prosecuted, which is very common. Um, I think it's statistics right now are one out of nine are being prosecuted and conviction rates are much lower anyways. um, And I did give a testimony, however, at the police station for eight hours about my stepdad and the horrible experience for me was I gave this re-traumatizing interview as a 15 year old at the police station about my stepdad. And all they did was looking at his computer and they found a bunch of adult porn and they let it go. They didn't even give me a physical examination to begin wow. with. Like there's so many moments where the system just failed me, you know, as a victim to, to, to bring justice. However, my mother dragged me into family court saying like a child belongs to home and to the mom. And I have to say like throughout my journey, there've been earthly angels and that judge in that, court and I have to say I represented my freaking self at age 15 in court um and that judge wasn't was an earthly angel she knew something was up she didn't really know what but I won the case um and she granted me to live by myself and restraining order and so age 16 finally moved into my own apartment um and then went to school in the morning worked at night it was tough and so I decided that I want to start therapy to start healing you know and um, and unfortunately, with that therapist, I encountered my next abuser. Um, and that's, a you know, to make a very long story short, um, we started therapy. I, you know, now understanding the therapist-client dynamics, I kind of became yeah. emotionally dependent. And, and, and look, I was 16. I had nobody. I just gave up my entire life, started a new life on the other side of the country. Um, You're very vulnerable. Yeah. And so, and he started really caring. And I, I fell for that and so at some point he offered private contact he's like I you know like I want to be somebody you can count on and we don't have to do therapy I want to be there more for you and um, I gratefully took that um and then at some point he's like why don't you move in with me so you don't have to be alone at 16 you know and I can help and you don't have to work and blah 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 and again like I was 16 like now seeing the red flags I'm like oh gosh um yeah but at that time, you're too young. You don't see it, especially yeah, and, with the modeling that you've had. Yeah, like, yeah, correct. Yeah. And so I moved in with him and the first few weeks were fine. And then it started getting terrible really quick. Um, he took me out of school saying like, you need to focus on my healing. More and more rules came up. And um, shortly after that, he started sexually abusing me. And it um, continued for two years. Um, and I... I I didn't know what to do, you know, like I had nowhere to go. And he he confirmed that and continued to put that in my mind. Like, you have nobody, like I'm the only one who cares for you. Look, nobody's looking for you. Like, where do you even go? And then, you know, from emotional dependency, I became financially dependent, you know, all the things as a young teen. And it took a while. And at age 18, however, I went to the pharmacy and asked 
I was just done with life. I was just like, if this is all to it, I'm done. And Celine Dion just came out with a new album in November of 2013. And I was pissed. I was really pissed. Um, it's like all those crappy love songs. Like if this is love, I'm done. Like, I don't want to be loved. I don't want to love. I'm done dreaming. I'm done giving home. And like, if you got, like, I don't even think you're there. And I went to the forest and I took all those pills and attempted suicide. And um, luckily I was found by a dog and its owner and they performed CPR. I was rushed into hospital. I was in a coma for a week and it was a close call and they got me back to life. And the doctors were pretty confused why nobody was looking for me. And they saw my Celine Dion keychain. So they got me the freaking new album. And when Mm, I woke up, Yeah. And when I woke up, I like the first thought I had was like, wow, why am I even here? I am not even capable of, you know, killing myself. Like what was my purpose here? And so then the nurse came in and gave me that album and I was so angry at her. I was like, how do you do Like, you know, and then finally agreed to listen to the album and the very first song, um, again, it's cheesy, but the very first song is called Love Me Back to Life. And I listened to it and it struck me, something struck me. And I looked up the story, you know, about the song and she was explaining, you know, she was picturing this girl being in the hospital in a car accident and in a coma. Uh, I was like a heartbeat and it just spoke to me, you know, and then. Of course. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, and then I, you know, those red buttons when you call for the nurse. Yeah. Um, hospital. I kept pressing it and kept pressing it. And then the doctors came in and I said, I need to call the police right away. And so they came in and I gave a testimony and that guy was busted and he was convicted and put into a mental hospital. Um, but he, you know, was put away and I started my life at age 18. I thought, okay, what are my dreams? I've always wanted to be the first to go to high school for my family. And they always told me that I'm too dumb and I'm only produced to be salt. And I said, no, I'm going to go to high school. So I started going to high school at age 18 and I graduated at age 21, but I did it, you know? And, yeah. um, and then I, has, I thought, well, I've always dreamed to live in New York City it was like my biggest dream, you know, from law and order. And just like knowing yeah. the city of dreams, like all the people who live there, they work their freaking ass off. And it's just a city of like dreams and hot work. And I felt like I needed to be there. And so I worked so hard to save up money. And in July of 2015, I jumped on a plane and I moved to freaking New York City and I lived the year of my life. I mean, like Bruce Willis was my freaking neighbor. Like it was just insane, you know? And That's so cool. Um, it was pretty amazing. And then after a year in New York, I felt like I was supposed to move west and it didn't make any sense for me. I thought I'm going to stay for the rest of my life in New York. Yeah. And it was pretty hard decision to make, but I felt strongly about it and I thought I'm going to end up in California, but I ended up in Vegas of all places and um, moved there in 2016. And I started volunteering for, for organizations that help refugees and human trafficking survivors. And up until this point, I didn't tell anybody what happened to me. I felt so ashamed. I didn't want to be, be blamed, nor did I want to be judged. And I felt like if I tell anybody, they all call me crazy, you know, because that's the stigma. If you're abused, you're crazy. Um, and um, I became really close friends with one of the founders of one of the organizations down there. And I started opening up to her. And one night she sat me down and she said, Coco, what you're telling me is child exploitation. You're a survivor of child trafficking. And that shattered my world. First of all, like I had to learn from somebody else years later, what happened to me is child trafficking. And then this word I know I knew I ha- I was abused, but this word trafficking, I felt like put so much more dirt on me and so much more guilt and shame and just heaviness. And it took me a few weeks to process all of that. Mm-hmm. But then after a few weeks, I just became so angry. I thought, why in the world did I have to learn as a child through an American TV show that I've been abused and nobody else taught me? And then years later, I had to learn from somebody else that I was trafficked. Why is nobody talking about what human trafficking really looks like instead of the glorification version that we see in Hollywood, you know? And that's what's just like, 
okay, we got to do something about this. And I started talking to more and more friends about my story. And then one, one friend invited me on the podcast and I told you, you know, I, I thought, oh, it's just going to be five people who listen yeah. to that. And that was about two and a half, three years ago. Well, jokes on me. And <laughs> <laughs> um, more and more people started to want to learn about it. You know, I started volunteering more and more for organizations. And I ended up for a weekend trip to Salt Lake City with some girlfriends and to Park City. And I fell in love, you know, with the mountains here. And I was just like, gosh, dang it, I have to move here. And so in 2017, I moved back to Germany for a year to save my money so I can come to school here and, and, and live in the this divine mountainous life. Um, and so I gave myself actually two years to save up enough money to come back. And I was back in 10 months. Um, wow. I do not recommend <laughs> worked like six nights um, in a row, like night shifts for like 10 months. I didn't have a life, but it was so worth it. And so I moved here and um, started, you know, going to school. I've all, you know, my biggest dream always was like being the first to go to university for my family and prove them all wrong. And now I'm on my way, you know, to become a freaking forensic neurologist and psychologist. And amazing. Um, and we, well, I just heavily started being more involved um, about teaching human trafficking and, and supporting survivors and, and trauma healing. And, and so in, 2019, we launched the Cocoa Birthman Scholarship Fund because my my way out of, of trafficking and my ultimate freedom was education and it gave me the ultimate empowerment. And, and we give out scholarships to higher education for human trafficking survivors worldwide because I have a vision that in five or 10 years from now, we will have survivors in leadership positions who will change this world to a more resilient, more compassionate world. I know we have a lot of organizations who you know, safe houses who will, you know, help survivors back on their feet and put them back to work for the sake of making ends meet. But I just don't feel like that's, that's to it. And, you know, my closest friends are all survivors and they're one of the most eloquent, intelligent, um, compassionate, resilient, and strongest people I know, and like most loyal. And I thought like, what can we do with this world if we have those people in leadership roles? And, yes. and so that's what we're all about, or I'm all about. And, um, now just going around and, and, and teaching law enforcement and medical staff about human trafficking and, um, and, and, and encouraging trauma healing. Um, and although, you know, human trafficking will always be my cause, I think, especially the last year and a half, I have explored and discovered that my, my purpose is just healing and we all need it, you know, and I've, mm-hmm. I've been so grateful when the TED team reached out to me and asked if I could give a TED talk because, I thought that that's a great opportunity to approach everybody in, instead of just survivors of human trafficking, um, because we all have trauma, right? Like right. not all of us suffer from complex PTSD, um, or, 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 or not all of us went through traumatic events like human trafficking, but all of us have deeply rooted relationship trauma and unhealed wounds that cause us to dehumanize others, even just in thought. And and I, I started, you know, going into research of like wanting to understand really the root issue of evil in this world. And if you go and look at like human rights disasters like Cambodia or Rwanda or the Holocaust, even you, you see that the root issue of evil is unresolved trauma yes. and, and unhealed wounds. And that leads to dehumanizing others and even entire groups. And so that's what I'm all about now. Like I've, you know, my, my platforms grew so fast and I feel so honored, you know, I feel so honored to be in this role. I remember as a child, I watched an interview by Mariska Hargitay where she was saying like, she feels so honored that people email her and disclose to her sometimes for the very first time. And I thought, man, she's so cool. I want to be like her. And fun fact, you know, like 11 years later now, after my escape, people disclosed to me and, now Mariska Hargitay follows me on Instagram. You know? Oh, that's so cool. Um, and it's just amazing. I've been all around the world now teaching and speaking and meeting amazing, incredible survivors and individuals and meeting you. I mean, your work has helped me so much in going back and opening back up for relationships in any capacity. And, um, and I think like healing is such a broad spectrum and it comes in so many ways and it's so unique to everybody and there's no cookie cutter system for that you know when we all need it and so 
I don't know. It's just what I do now. And it's, it's amazing. And um, we just finished up on Saturday, a huge summit here in, in Utah for human, the human trafficking education and Pol policy summit. And, you know, now all of a sudden I stand next to individuals representing the white house and politicians wow, and leaders incredible. and um, friends with Elizabeth smart, you know, like I, yeah, first came forward after hearing that she is public about her story. I was like, if she can do it, I can do it. And, you know, now I'm friends with her and it's just all becoming full circle. And, and he, what I really want to like people to know is like what happened to me should have never happened to me. It was not my fault in no way would I ever say that. And, you know, if you're a survivor of abuse or sexual violence or domestic abuse or any emotional abuse, even like, it's not your fault, but, but healing is my responsibility, you know, and it's, I can't give that to anybody. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to share and being just vulnerable on my platforms and publicly and helping, encouraging people and, you know, coming back into that place of vulnerability. I mean, we just briefly talked about Brene Brown before, but her TED talk was life-changing for me, you know, like the power of vulnerability. I believe it. I have studied her books like 20,000 times, all of them. And <laughs> she's my hero, you know, and, and has helped me in, in so much in discovering my own, like, where do I have to sit with my emotions and what do they have to teach me? We live in a society um, especially in Utah where like toxic positivity, like you yeah. have to be happy all the time. You have to do all those things. And like, when you're sad, like you have to suppress that and push that away. I don't believe that's the way, you know, I believe we have emotions on all spectrum um, for purpose and on purpose. And instead of like pushing those emotions in a way, I try to invite them like friends and mm. have them teach me. And, and I'm like, um, so I, I said that somewhere. I was like, when I have sadness come, I say, okay, hello, my friend, yeah. what do you have to teach me? And so I picture this table that I can sit with my sadness or with my anger or with my joy. And when they're ready to move on, then they leave again. You know, they, they, they're not permanent renters, but they come in waves and, you know, I invite them and they go again. And it's so important for us as humans to just feel emotions so that we can learn from them and move forward and sit with our triggers, you know, like it's, we all have triggers or we call them our buttons being pushed. And I believe instead of reacting, we can pause, observe and learn from it. And then we respond rather than react. And instead of blaming others, we, we you know, we can point that finger back to us and like, okay, why do I feel so triggered right now? And there's, you know, I'll be working on myself for the rest of my life, but it's so worth it because Although it's been so scary for me, you know, going and, you know, sitting with my trauma and with my grief and my sadness. But by doing that, I have allowed myself to experience love and joy on such a much more profound level in life, you know, and, and I feel so deeply grateful. I've, you know, seen the darkest of dark in yeah. humanity, but now I also get to see the biggest miracles, you know, like it's just. I don't know. Um, I wouldn't ever say that I'm grateful for what happened to me, but I wouldn't change it if even if I could, because it has taught me so many valuable lessons. It has brought me right here to this incredible life, this incredible work that I feel just every day. I feel so honored. And um, what, what was been so interesting, I shared the stage um, on Saturday with some other survivors and one of them said something really powerful. She's like, you guys see us up here on stage so polished thinking we have it all put together. But in fact, it's like, no, I mean, I'm still a human and I get to do my stuff all every day, you know, and just promoting that authenticity and vulnerability. I don't know. I just, I'm such a believer in, I mean, your work just speaks to that. Wow. I mean, thank you so much for sharing your yeah. story in that, you know, I think for so many people, there's just not even a, first off the awe of your resilience of your humanness of what you've uh con continued through and and just what you've turned it into and i think that's inspirational no matter what someone comes from and especially if someone uh comes from experiences that you've had or similar and i'm curious like for the 
like when we're in our everyday regular lives, quote unquote, you know, there were people in their everyday regular lives around you and around mm-hmm. your family when you were young. Mm-hmm. What are some of the signs that people can look out for? You said one is to move frequently, yeah. but I suppose if you're around a family, you only know that they moved away and they right. just moved here rather than, so what are some other signs that the listeners can sort of keep their eyes out for? No, definitely. Good question. I mean, you always want to look for the typical abuse signs, you know, um, even especially when we talk about children, you know, what is the child's behavior? Are they extremely angry? Um, do they have extreme sexual behavior a child shouldn't be like very sexual um uh, have you noticed that they have sexual diseases no child should be having any sexual transmitted diseases that is a huge red flag and then also like how communicative and open are the parents um i mean um our mother was very very good in manipulating you know the master manipulator narcissist um and she made sure that everything was run by her, every communication. And, um, and so just how, how open is that parent figure? If it's the parent that is abusive um, to, to have an open relationship with somebody outside and how willing are they to let you interact with their child um, privately without, you know, having the parent there. And then there's, there's, you know, how schooling, how the grades, all those things. And, you know, and then obviously, like, do you see any bruising? Um, These are like the typical, typical abuse signs that I always say, look for those first. Um, And look, especially, you know, does that child seem traumatized, which, you know, indicates, like I said, anger, sexual behavior, extreme shyness, reservedness. Uh, You know, children are different. We have more shy children and then we have more outgoing children. But when it goes to the extreme levels, that usually is an indicator like something is up and something isn't wrong. And whether or not that is trafficking, it's still worth it to check in on that child regardless, you know. And and then if it comes to adult trafficking, there's so many, so many different things. I mean, no trafficking is like the other. And, and it's very unique in every situation. And it, um, what I always teach is that Human trafficking in the least cases is uh, the result of kidnapping. Um, it usually begins with grooming. Um, there's something we call the, the boyfriend style, the Romeo style of trafficking, where um, an individual will pretend to be a boyfriend and groom another vulnerable in, um, individual to and, and, you know, become the, the girlfriend, boyfriend, whoever happens to men and women. Um, and over the next few weeks, they will be groomed emotionally, financially with gifts. And, um, and at some point, they will be exploited. And um, again, usually not chained up somewhere. Um, I have a friend, her name is Julie. She also spoke with me this past Saturday, and she shared her story. And, you know, she was abused as a child, then in a domestic violence marriage, and then she got out of there. And that's when a trafficker came around. And so you got from bad to worse to even worse. And they target specifically vulnerable individuals who who have an abuse history who are emotionally unstable who are um physically um illnesses um financially um unstable and um and so that's happened for her and it was a boyfriend you know who who and then trafficked her out for I would have to look up how many years. Another friend of mine, she came from Costa Rica. She was promised by her best friend here in the United States. They have a nanny job for her to come here. And she wanted to support her children in Costa Rica. So she came and she was picked up by the, in the airport by her best friend and brought to a house where they took her passport. And she was sold by her best friend to a guy for $300 and then trafficked for the next six years. You know, and it's very different. And then um, we have something, it's called the gorilla pimping, um, where that's one of the most brutal one. And, and I, I think the name already says it, where it's just through physical threat and, and, and harming uh, a, tar- a trafficking victim will be, you know, kept in place. And it's very vast. And we teach on that on our website. Like, if you want to go on that, and there's also this amazing maybe we can link it later the onwatch training it's an hour training with different modules where you can go through because i could go for the next two hours going through different signs yeah. um but this onwatch training is for free um and it's this amazing malu foundation that i've been collaborating with they put it together 
and you can go through it and learn about it so that you're more able to see some signs because it happens right in front of you. And anybody who listens to it, I like, I always said that you've already watched human trafficking without knowing what you're looking at. It happens right in front of you. It happens in every community. We have more slaves today than ever before in history. And the National Slavery Index estimated over 40 million victims um, worldwide as of the last two years. Um, it's a, now the new numbers are a $53 trillion enterprise. Um, wow. And the capital of human trafficking is here in the United States. You know, it's not a developing country. It's yeah. right here and 80% of customers worldwide for child sex are American men and women. And so we, 80% of the customers. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And so we, we have an issue here and we need to address it. And so I'm very, very grateful for people like you who open up their platform to bring that kind of awareness um, and, and education, because we, we need all individuals from all segments of society to be educated um, because it affects everybody. It affects every community and the importance of starting to make it a topic is so important in our media and it's not covered enough. It's hardly ever talked about in media and yet it's the biggest human rights challenge of our history, human history, you know, like, and especially of the century. And so um, that's what I'm trying to do. Like, can we bring this up? And the most common question that I get usually when people reach out is like, how can I get involved? I want to do something. And the first thing that I say, you start speaking about it with the people in your life. Because the ripple effect is so important, the, the the importance of educating the people in your circle, because then they will go out and teach your circle and, and so on. Um, and then the next thing that you can do is um, take the training, get involved, find organizations in your community. Um, I usually try to move away from recommending people find the big organizations because we don't know what they're going to do in your community, but find local communities like safe houses or crisis hotlines for domestic violence that you can volunteer for and all those things and get involved in that way. Um, We, we just want to see that change in the communities because it really happens nearly in every neighborhood. And like me, I was right there. I was in the middle of dance classes. Wow. I'm curious. I would imagine people listening are curious too, like Mm -hmm. whatever happened to your mom and to your siblings. I ran away at 15 and that was the last time. Wow. I never prosecuted. And unfortunately, in Germany, there's a statute of limitation of 10 years. And so I couldn't even prosecute her anymore. And what we're trying to work on right now is some legislative changes um, here in the United States and in Germany. For example, in Germany, the, the production, the possession or distribution of child pornography is not even a felony. It's a misdemeanor and you get only two years on parole. And so there have been so many things that had me fall through the cracks of the system as a child victim and that's where we're trying to do that now you know and make changes so that victims in the future will have it easier to prosecute um, and be heard and believed and and listened to and support it yeah you would think there wouldn't be a statute of limitations on something like that because the time right by the time you're you know 13 to 23 it takes a time to heal and come to a place of where you feel courageous enough the least victims they like go and testify because it's scary it's re-traumatizing it's brutal so scary yeah um and you know and it's very you know we 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 need change and we're promoting and hoping to see some change um sooner rather than later and there are some changes happening more and more law enforcement departments start training their agents on trauma-informed interviews yeah like trauma isn't remembered when we're how it's census it's different it's so it's so important to understand the trauma brain so that prosecution will be more successful and victims and survivors don't get re-traumatized. So that's what we're all doing. And so the more people talk about it and more people be educated on human trafficking, on, on trauma brain, on, on the policies, um, the more involvement we will get and the more support we will have to make changes so that people coming out of human trafficking or sexual assault or violence will have a chance to heal and and see that society is helping them and is there with them. I mean, Elizabeth Smart is starting a great like uh, campaign right now that we believe you campaign where you believe survivors 
And I've seen it in my life, the amount of victim shaming and blaming afterwards that I went through is horrendous. The times of being called crazy, or I don't believe you, or you messed up from what happened to you. I can't count the times I was told all those things, you know, and, and I, like, I feel strongly about this. If somebody comes to you, choosing you to disclose to you, you get to say three things. You get to say, I believe you. Thank you for trusting me. I'm so proud of you. And what can I do to support you? Yes. You don't get to say, why did you stay that long? Why did you wear X, Y, Z? Um, why does this and that? Like you do not have the chance and not you don't get the right to do that. You have been chosen into a very honorable position of being chosen to be disclosed to. You get to say, I believe you. Thank you for trusting me. And what can I do to support you? Um, and that is so important. Yeah. And I have seen it so powerfully in my life, just hearing the words of, I believe you, even though there might have been times where I don't have evidence, you know, it's so important and so, so healing just to be heard. Because at the end of the day, we're all the same. We all want to be heard. We all want to know that we matter and we all want to be seen. And if you can give that to a survivor, you will make such a difference in their healing journey. And if you choose to judge or blame them, you can do much more harm than good. Um, and, and you can prevent healing on, on a very, not even imaginable level, you know? And so th those are the things that you can do and, and be somebody that people feel safe around. Like you are a not judgmental person. Be somebody that no matter what, people feel like, oh, I can come to that person and know they hold no judgment. And that that is something that everybody can do. Be be kind, be compassionate. Because we all, you know, I don't know who said that, but it's a quote from somebody. We all fight battles we know nothing about and we all do the best we can the way we know how to. Right. And so these are the things an everyday person can do. Um, of course, you can always donate, but not everybody's in a position of financially contributing to it. But I think more importantly is just being somebody emotionally supporting survivors and being a safe place. Yeah. And having these conversations with people we yes. know, we love and, and yes. even not. So if you're listening, please share this, please get it in more people's yes. ears so that we can fight this. I think one of the parts that prevents people from having these conversations or sharing them is the immense amount of suffering we experience knowing this occurs. But, you know, right. it's like our own ability, or our own capacity to hold the possibility of human darkness. Right. You know, we're like afraid of it. We're afraid of all the parts of ourselves that are dark, you know? I know. And here's the thing, like it is, I, I've heard it so many times saying something like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. It's too dark. It's too heavy. It's like, I know it's heavy. I know it's dark, but imagine living through it. How heavy and right. dark is that? And I, we need people who are courageous enough to sit in that and talk about it and not look away because looking away and being quiet about it will feed the issue and that right. will make you be a contributor to the issue. And so if you want to make a change and make a difference and see a difference, you bring it up in everyday conversations because it happens everywhere and it it can happen to everybody. You know, it, right. tomorrow it could be your daughter, your son, your sister, your student, you know, and you don't want to be the one who missed the opportunity to educate somebody who could have saved that one. You know, and I always say, none of us can save the world, but we can all save the world for somebody. And right. so that's I your chance that. to, to, sit in the darkness, even though it's uncomfortable, but it's important. Such a privilege to say, I get to choose not to sit in the darkness. It's like, right. sit in it, choose it, choose to speak about it, choose to educate. Well, we and will definitely, sorry, go on. Go ahead. No, no. What I want to wrap up with, because I feel strongly about it. And I need to remind people like human trafficking isn't a political issue and I don't want it to be dragged. So many times I see my story being dragged into political debates human trafficking is a human rights issue and we have to look beyond our political disagreements, nationalities, sexualities, religious beliefs. We, no matter, I don't care who you vote for or what you believe or who you love. This is an issue where we all have to come together hand in hand and look beyond those differences in order to have a chance. Otherwise those traffickers will win. Yes. And that's not happening. Not on our watch.
Not today, Satan. No, <laughs> not today, Satan. Um, okay, so tell us where we can, I'll, we'll make sure that we link everything in the show notes yeah. that you've shared and tell us about your foundation and and how that helps support and what we can, where we can donate. Yeah, so if you go to the Coco Birthman Scholarship Fund, com, and you can find out more about us what we do in particular the scholarships that we give out um i'm really excited a new semester starting we'll give out scholarships um and we have amazing survivors who are getting their master's and their phd and so awesome it's amazing and i think it's such a you know anybody who contributes to that you're giving a statement to survivor like I don't want to just put you to work for making ends meet, but I believe in you and you, you you deserve a life and they're so powerful. And I really have this vision that in 10 years from now, we have all those leadership positions filled with one of the most amazing individuals who went through the worst. And yet here they are telling their traffickers in the face, like, who's laughing now, you know? And yeah. so that's what we do. And like, come please check us out. And then you can find me really on any platform on Instagram um, as Coco Berthman and on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. And, um, and I promise I don't talk about human trafficking every day. It's more healing, but I, I will educate and, and I, I, uh, but I promote healing and for everybody. So come You're check doing us out. Beautiful work. And oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story, for sharing you, for sharing your journey into healing and your continued journey of healing. And just so grateful that you have your, you know, that your voice, that you're shouting loud and, and that people get to hear it and the importance of your work. Thank you. And thanks for your platform for doing this. It's amazing. Of course. <laughs> <laughs>